It's been nice weather past few days, hasn't it? Good surf, too. Awesome. Um, hey, before we jump in and get into the teaching, uh, a couple things. Um, if you're new here, glad you're here. If you're tuning in maybe for the first time or for the 30th time um, on our live stream, glad that you chose our church community to be part of that. Oh, by the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to quickly usher you a Bible. But we're glad that you guys uh, have chosen to come and join and be part of uh, what God's doing here. We're excited. You know, we're like one of many great churches on the Central Coast to choose from in Slow. And uh, we're just trying to do our thing as best as we can, as best as we know how, with the gifts that God's given us and the abilities and the talents. And so we just truly believe that God's doing something fresh and new and uh, glad that you're here. We like to say, you know, as a church, uh, we basically build everything around three main aims uh, three simple words. Number one, presence, transformation, and mission. Presence meaning we love God's presence. Like that's that's why we're here. That's why we gather, whether it be outdoors, indoors, and in small groups. We love God's presence. It's it's His presence that defines us. It's His presence that we need. It's His presence that gives us comfort. It's the second thing we also recognize is transformation into Jesus likeness. Uh, our aim is in coming to meet with God is to become transformed, to become like Jesus, to become like His Son, to live our lives in a way that reflect everything that Jesus is and what he was all about. And then finally, we tend to think of the idea of uh, devotion to God's mission. In other words, your life, my life, our church uh, has a purpose. What you do in life, your career, your job, your vocation, your marriage, your family, your parenting skills, your parenting lack of skills, whatever it is, it all has a purpose. God calls us, invites us to be a part of the work that he's doing in this world. We just simply describe that as God's mission. So presence, transformation, mission. We're stoked to be able to be a church here on the Central Coast, seeking as best as we can to embody all of that. So three weeks ago, we started a brand new series. Uh, we just simply described it as gospel as center in matters of race, justice, and humanity. In matters of race, justice, and humanity. We recognize that in this cultural moment that we're living, that it's essential um, for us to address these matters, these topics. Now, again, we have a limited space, limited time of which we can do that and tell you ways in which we're trying to do that as best as we can. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I think it's really easy to either A, ignore or to deny or to run away from some of these cultural elements or to just wholesale embrace them all to the point of uh, non-discerningly just adopt certain mindsets that are not really in line with the heart of God. So what we really want to do is to address these things as best as we can to turn to Scripture, recognizing that many of these items really are, are items that are deeply rooted into sermon number one of this in series that we looked at two weeks ago, back the Bible memory verse is all about, which is that we as human beings are made in the likeness and image of God, which means that there is a distinct value that every single one of us have. So anytime somebody uh, claims more value than somebody else who's got either darker skin color, lighter skin color, or whatever, the fact of the matter is, is that it's a violation of God's plan. It's a violation, it's a distortion. What you end up having is preferentialism. You have people elevating oneself 
arrogance. You have other people subjugating other people. You have the oppressed and the oppressor. That's exactly what you have. In other words, you have our culture in which we're living in today, in which we've been a part of, which I think you can argue all history has always, always been like this. And yet it's into this culture that God stepped into and allowed that culture of discrimination and destruction and chaos to do to him what it does to all other image bearers. Put him on a cross. Crucify him. Cancel him. And Jesus does that because he deeply is in love with this project of creation that he began. His aim is redemption. His aim is to take people that are willing to say yes to him and to follow him and to be transformed by him to then be changed and then to be part of his mission. That's, that's our, our big aim here. So that being said, we began a couple of weeks ago looking at this larger subject and several topics that we're going to be looking at. I told you it's going to be between four to six weeks. Kind of give a, a little bit of a buffer because, for example, today is going to be part two. It's just justice part two. Look, want to know where justice part one was? Just go to our website, podcast. It's all right there. And what I want to tell you, uh, as I've been saying in the past couple weeks, here's how we're really anticipating trying to do this as best as we can. Number one, a teaching. That's kind of what we're doing right now. Number two, posture of humility. So we're inviting you to recognize we don't necessarily have all the answers. Uh, many of us are at various stages of development and growth and wrestling and thinking through these matters of justice and injustice and race and racism and what it looks like to really embody this in the life of Jesus. So what we're constantly asking for is we need patience. This is, this is not like broader culture at large where you don't say the right thing, you just get canceled. Or you say the wrong thing, maybe with the right attitude, you get canceled. That's not what the church is. The church is a community of very imperfect people seeking as best as we can to follow humbly the teachings of Jesus in order to be transformed by him. So that we, again, going back, looping back to be part of the mission that he's invited us into. So number one, teaching. Number two, posture of humility. Number three, confession and pardon, the important element that's kind of woven into the whole fabric of what we do here as a gathering is to confess our sin. That's for everybody, by the way. It's not just like, if you're not a Christian here today, we're inviting you. We do that as well. But also, if you are a Christian here today, uh, we always are in a state of recognizing there's things to be, be repented of. And then finally, uh, clarification. And so the way that we're seeking to create space for clarification, this is simply due to the fact that we have a very limited, finite, or uh, I should say I have a very limited and finite moment to teach, which means there's, I'm not going to be able to get everything in that I would love to be able to speak. And again, might have left you wondering, what does he think about this? And why didn't he address that? Why did he uh, avoid that particular topic or not go deeper into this particular thing? Um, the fact of the matter is I, a finite space, finite time, which means it doesn't, I should say, it doesn't mean that I don't have opinions on certain things or ideas or thoughts. It just means I have finite space. And if you have questions, because where I'm really trying to do everything I can on my energy and strength to create space to be able to address any questions that you have or bring clarifications or to try to help give some insight that you might have on particular subject matter in our culture at large or scripture. So the way that we're doing this is immediately following our message time together here. Uh, please come up afterwards immediately and uh, talk to me. Uh, we'll provide space. I don't, you know, again, I, 
it could be five minutes, it could be, you know, 50 minutes. I don't really care. I'm, I'm happy to try and create space as long as is necessary to be able to uh, try to address any questions that you might have. Secondly, if that doesn't work, if you need to get out of here immediately afterwards to go get some food, whatever, uh, or to beat the crazy lines over at Traders, whatever. Um, on Thursday night, my wife and I are actually having a group which is simply calling a midweek gathering, uh, to which we are just inviting people to come over. We're processing scripture. We're praying together. We're uh, pausing just to reflect upon God's goodness, and we're ultimately seeking ways by which we can practice radical love. Are things falling down behind me? Uh, practice radical love towards all. So uh, if you're looking for a place to belong or to connect or you just want to further clarify or further dig in deeper into some of the subject matter that we're having here on uh, Sunday mornings, um, just go to, onto our website and look up weekly gathering. All that information right will be right there for you. So there we go. Now we're ready to jump in. Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Psalm 8914. Psalm 8914. Now, again, like I said, these are, these are topical series. Um, it's, in a lot of ways, this is outside of my comfort zone. I'm normally like a teach-through-a-book-in-the-Bible type of a person. And uh, so in some ways, this is a little bit disorienting for me. But I feel like it's a really important thing for us as a church community to come together, to seek Scripture together with humble posture, to really look into this. Uh, so as soon as we're done with this series, we'll be getting back into more of a, a book-type teaching series. Uh, but for right now, these are just a series of topics that we'll be doing the best that we can to look at them. Again, uh, first week, we looked at the image of God, the theme of that. Second week, which was last week, we looked at the subject of justice. Today's part two of that. We might even have a part three, if you're lucky. Uh, there's some other elements that we'll look at, like power structures, uh, neighborliness. There's a variety of things that we will be looking at. But right now, what I want to do right now is I want to read Psalm 89, verse 14, as it's very instructive to us in terms of, of why the subject of justice even matters. You wonder that? Why does it even matter? Why is it even a thing? Do you realize that in just normal biology, it doesn't matter? I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago or last week. A praying mantis, after mating, uh, will eat and devour its mate, all right? Um, and we hear that, we're like, that's not nice. That's right, that's not nice. And if you did that, you go to jail, and you should go to jail for that, because that's not cool. But the fact of the matter is, a praying mantis does not have any sense of justice. It's not right or wrong. Human beings, we have a sense of right and wrong. In fact, I would even go so far as to say it's one of the reasons why there's so much conflict, is we have differing perspectives as to what is right and what is wrong. And oftentimes, that boundary line gets pushed or moved, or slighted, or when we feel like we are being taken advantage of, or something happens, or we say that there's an injustice that's happened to me. My car has been broken into uh, over the past, I don't know, a couple years in, in my front house. This last time they broke in, I, and just to be fair, I've left it unlocked, all right? So don't judge me, but I've left it unlocked. They've broken in. They rifled through all my stuff, and I was realizing this past time this happened, probably about two weeks ago, I'm like, man, I get out to my car, and everything's rifled through. Everything's just torn apart in my car. I'm like, this stays. We live in a really safe neighborhood, and so, so it seems odd and unusual. And it's been like a series of a week of realizing, oh, my gosh, they stole my binoculars. They stole, you know, food that I had in my center council, my, my food. I need food. Like, my food in my center council has got my mints. What happened to my mints? Where's my mints? Oh, they got stolen. Like, and I'm like, that's an injustice, right? Again, small, small thing. Small injustice. But the fact of the matter is we have this sense of right and wrong. 
just how we function. It's how we work. And the reality is we have this because, again, as Genesis 1 tells us, that we are created in the image of God. God cares about these things. As human beings, we're the only species on this planet that animates the earth that has this sense of right and wrong. We call it justice. So with that being said, I want to read Psalm 89 verse 14. It says this. Tune your heart right now to listen to God's word. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And failing love and truth walk before you as attendants. This is the word of God. So God, right now we ask you that you would just, in this moment of pause, to just reflect upon your beauty, your goodness, your characters, your attributes. And God, we want our hearts and our lives to be transformed by this so that we can then be a part of joining the mission, God, that you send us out from this parking lot to participate in. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple things that we just noticed real first and foremost is that these are a list of characteristics of who God is, righteousness and justice. These are the two Hebrew words that we looked at last week, which was uh, mishpat and sedekah, the idea of righteousness and justice. These two Siamese twins that appear, at least the word justice appears almost 400 times in the Old Testament. That's just the Old Testament, not including New Testament elements. So in other words, this is not a marginal topic that we, if you are a serious follower of Jesus, I don't care how you have maybe misconstrued or misunderstood what's happening in our culture at large, we cannot turn a blind eye away from justice without turning a blind eye away from one of the very characteristic attributes that form the foundation of God's throne. Did you get that, right? And this is what he is wanting us to understand, that righteousness and justice actually form the foundation of God's throne. So this is an important thing, and my hope as we begin to look at a variety of scriptures, which we have a lot that we'll be looking at here today. So have your Bibles ready to go. Uh, that you would look at this with fresh new eyes. Uh, I read this quote last week. I'll read it again. Tim Keller actually wrote an article called Which Justice? You can just Google it and figure out where it's at. Find it's worthy of reading and listening to or somehow absorbing. Uh, he goes on to say, Which Justice? He says, There has never been a stronger call for justice than those that we're hearing today. Yet seldom do we issue, do those issuing the calls acknowledge that currently there are competing visions of justice and often at sharp variance with one another. The point that Keller is pointing out is that justice is, is front and central right now on the stage. Uh, we, if, if you are a serious father of Jesus, you can't turn away from these things. I mean, you can, but you would be doing it in a way that would be to turn away from the pain and the hurt that people right now are dealing with. And these things matter to God. Again, secondly, to be turning away from a very biblical concept that's all throughout Scripture. So what we want to do as best as we can as faithful disciples of Jesus to really give our heart and mind our attention. Now, for some of us, that means to listen to these passages with fresh eyes or listen to them, think about them, uh, read them with fresh eyes, a fresh perspective. That's a little bit tough because I realize many of us uh, we immediately have a particular visceral reaction when it comes to certain words, especially ones that are oftentimes co-opted within a larger culture. And what I want to invite us to do is to, as best as we can, at least acknowledge there are certain political backgrounds, certain political leanings that each one of us bring to the text. 
So when people say, I'll just read the Bible at face value, you do not. Sorry to be so bold and just confrontative, but you do not read the Bible at face value. You bring certain characteristic ideas and background. You can say baggage. You bring certain uh, ideological constructs that might be uh, shaping the way that you think to the Bible. And it's, the best thing to do is at least acknowledge that so that when you do read the Bible and acknowledging the fact that there is a tendency for us to bring biases to the text, that we can at least be able to identify them. And then as best as we can, objectively as we can, let the scripture just inform our understanding of who God is and what God is trying to do within this world. So with that being said, I want to jump in. One last thing before we begin to look at some of these passages, I just think it's really important to just be as clear as I can. Clarity in these days are essential because I realize for some people, they might even ask questions. And again, I want to be clear, none of this is in response to anybody saying, what do you think about this? I'm just trying to uh, uh, be as productive as I can and to just bring forth as much clarity as I can in some of these things. So the clarity that I want for us to really begin to think about is that in light of the fact that from politics to protests, from politicians to media outlets, from preachers of secularism to preachers of the gospel, from social justice warriors all the way to Christian fundamentalism, uh, there is a reaction to the subject of justice. It's the, it's the elephant in the parking lot that we just have to think about. But again, like I said, because these are Bible things that we want to do the best that we can to really think about these in, in some clear ways. I want to read a quote from a pastor, a guy by the name of Tony Evans, and then I'll give you four ways uh, to really clarify our intentions as to what I envision the end game in all of this to be. So that's, uh, again, like I said, I want to be really clear. Like if you were to be wondering, what does Pastor Brian really want to do? What's his real main objective? I'll tell you that in four facets. So number one, listen to this uh, Quote by Tony Evans. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that if uh, you're looking for a good book to read, Tony Evans, is search him out, he's a phenomenal pastor. He's an African-American bro. He loves Jesus. He's deeply committed to the gospel. He's a worthy voice to pay attention to, listen to. Here's what he says. Justice is one of those misunderstood words. He says specifically social justice has become a controversial term meaning different things to different people. It is often used as a catchphrase to, uh, for illegitimate forms of government promoting the redistribution of wealth and the expansion of civil government. He goes on, this is why I choose the, frame, or the phrase biblical justice, which seeks to protect individual liberty while promoting personal responsibility, it is the equitable, impartial application of the rule of God's moral law to society. There is no clear and right definition of justice that excludes God. So to grasp justice, we must go to the scripture. The Bible condemns injustice because God is just. He finishes with this little statement. At the heart of biblical justice is the impartial application of God's moral law within all realms of society, including economic, political, social, and criminal justice. Any other definition of justice won't suffice. So it's a little bit lengthy of a quote. Thank you for being patient. But hopefully that gives a little bit of a clarity. And if it was read too fast, go back and listen to the podcast and hopefully it'll be helpful. So here's my four intentions that I want to be really clear on. My end game, what I'm hoping for, what I'm actually praying for, what I pray for you guys as a church community would begin to imbibe or live into. Number one, gospel fluency. Gospel fluency. You can write these down if you want. Gospel fluency. Um, 
it is my conviction that in response to two major responses, I think, that oftentimes we have found within the church, people who claim the name of Jesus. On the one hand, I think there are people who follow Jesus that are either wholesale embracing a secular, uh, one of the versions of secular cultures, definitions and methods of the concept of justice, or on the flip side, there are those, I think, that either write out, deny, reject, or apathetic towards the subject of justice. And what I would suggest to you, both extremes represent a deficiency in our fluency of the gospel. So my invitation to you as we begin to think about this is maybe begin to pray and ask God uh, specifically, if you want something to think about, ask God what are areas in your life that maybe you are not fluent in the gospel enough. Think of it as a language. Many of us, right? Imagine going to a sec- you know, another country. Like uh, I've gone to lots of Central American countries in my life, and my Spanish is so-so. I see, I see. So anyways, that's a stupid joke. But the point of the matter is it's not that great. And there's times when I have dialogue with people and I'm like, I say things, it's not correct, it's not what I intended, and I feel really embarrassed and stupid. But the point of the matter is, this is the way many of us are with regard to the, the gospel. Our fluency rate, our fluency level is pretty limited. In other words, we know more lines of Cardi B or Justin Bieber than we do know the scripture. That, that, or, or we know lines that are more applicable from our favorite Netflix show than even the Bible. And what I'm suggesting to you is that that we have the tendency to be more shaped by culture at large around us than the very text that we claim that points us to Jesus and leads us to life. And my hope would be that in the process of this, that our gospel fluency would, would rise. That's my hope. Secondly is faithfulness to God. At the end of the day, that's what this is about, faithfulness to God. God, what are you doing? In this world, what are you inviting us to? Who are you like? What are the traits that you are inviting us to live out that are distinctly connected to your character? We want to be faithful to God. We don't care about success. It's not that we're trying to build a big mega church. All of that is non... We don't care about that. We want to be faithful to the one who loves us and gave himself to us. Faithfulness to God. Thirdly is Christ-centered unity. Christ-centered unity. I realize that many of us... So a lot of us have differing opinions on a number of different things. That's going to happen. Again, in the body of Christ, you're going to have a divergence of opinions. We're not a cult. In other words, when you get a cult, you have constant monolith, monolithic ideas and understanding across the board. Uh, unilateral like thinking from the top guy or girl, whoever it is. And any deviance from that is, you know questioned or you're alienated that's we're not a cult we love jesus jesus brings all sorts of people together that are very diverse we have differing opinions we think we will see things differently we will have various understandings of how we are to wrestle with and think about these elements biblically but at the end of the day the church should be the one place where we recognize we are committed to each other because because we represent the God who's committed to us. So the idea of like being offended to the point of saying, I'm done, I'm leaving, that, that it should take a heck of a lot of to get us to that place. 
And even still, maybe that might be our, our, our willingness to just jump out of the ship or the vessel might actually be more of uh, an implication upon where our tolerance level is. And I think what the gospel is inviting us to is a radical unity that's focused around Jesus as our king. Does that make sense? Lastly, spirit-empowered love. So if you notice, there's a couple things that are really important to these four main aims. Number one, the gospel centricity. It's all about the gospel. And then the Trinitarian nature of it all. We need God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to have radical love towards all. We can't do this on our own. Because by nature, by nature, we single out those that are like us and we gravitate towards them. I've said this to you guys before many times. Like, if you are in a small group and everybody in that small Bible study is just like you, um, that's, that's, those are, that's a friend group. And there's nothing wrong with friend groups, but family. Family is a whole different other beast. Family means that there's going to be people that are in your life that you straight up do not agree with. You'll have differences of opinion, sometimes harsh differences of opinion. But at the end of the day, you're family. You're like, you still are able to sit around the table at Thanksgiving no matter how crazy Uncle Jack is and how much too much he's to drink. The fact of the matter is you are family and you love one another. And you're able to share a meal with each other. And you're not canceling each other out. The church needs to be that if I can say it, safe space that we come together and say, we will love no matter what. So our big aim is gospel fluency, faithfulness to God, Christ-centered unity, spirit-empowered love. We're not seeking to score woke points. We're not seeking to somehow sharpen up our conservatism, our progressivism, our fundamentalism, our secular progress, uh, our American exceptionalism. None of those things are our agenda. Jesus is. Jesus is our agenda. He's the one that we long for. It's God's presence. The transformation of God's spirit into the likeness of Christ and being a part of the mission that God invites us into. A pastor, a guy by the name of Brian Zahn, and I'm going to read some scriptures here before we end uh, jumping into this, uh, says this. He said, it is, not, uh, it is not so much the task of the church to change the world as it is to be the world already changed by Christ. Just listen to that again. It is not so much the task of the world to change the world as it is to be the world of change that's already been changed by Christ. What is the church? Again, our, our, our failure to live this out is just oftentimes reflective of our deficiencies within our theology, our understanding of who God is, understanding what God's doing in this world. In other words, Jesus has begun something. As we are walking in obedience to him and we're humble, we will begin to embody, to live out, to demonstrate what true change and acceptance. Do you realize this is one of the most amazing things that made the church in the first century radically leap off of the page of history? was its radical embrace and love of all people, regardless of gender, regardless of skin color, regardless of wherever uh, ethnicity. They were a community that says we are deeply committed to each other and to Jesus as the king of it all. So with that being said, I'm going to jump in and just give a quick little definition that I used last week. So we're beginning to make our way into the text now. 
Definition of justice. Here we go. Righteous action undertaken by either God or humans that creates equality among humanity. It's used to uplift the righteous and the oppressed and challenge the unrighteous oppressor. Read it again. Justice is the righteous action undertaken by God or humans that creates equality among humanity. It's used to uplift the righteous and the oppressed and challenge the unrighteous oppressor. I asked the question last week as well. Where does justice, when you think about justice, where does it happen? Where does it, what's, the, um, what's the forum in which it takes place? And I think the way that we answer this oftentimes will uh, show how we have theologically thought about this. I know for me, I was trying to be honest last week and just realized, for me, for many, many years, if you were to ask me what does justice look like and where does it take place, and it just really was more of a deficiency of how I understood it. But again, growth comes from by acknowledging a deficiency, recognizing that, and then beginning to make some corrective changes with regard to it. Um, I would have thought that justice takes place in a courtroom. It seems to be how it takes place for the most part in America. If something unjust happens, the way that things are corrected are in a courtroom. But in the Bible, what we've been saying is that it's different, that, that it doesn't negate or neglect the courtroom uh, idiom or picture of where justice takes place because the Bible describes this cosmic courtroom where all humanity will stand before God and God will separate the wheat from the chaff and so on and so forth. Then the idea is God's cosmic justice breaking in. However, throughout the Bible, the way the Bible, Bible project guys describe it is that nine out of ten times of the usage of the word justice throughout the Bible are not more of the cosmic courtroom type scenario. It's actually taking place through the lives of caring, compassionate people. In other words... It's horizontal, me loving my neighbor, me caring for those that are near me, me thinking about those and seeking to provide help to those that may have been forgotten or neglected. We talked about last week that throughout the Bible that scholars, theologians have described what's called the quartet of the vulnerable. And this basically is the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor. These four people, four people groups, I should say, God says, I want you to take special care to think about these. And in some of the passages that we will read, you'll begin to see how these kind of play into it. So with that being said, what I want to do right now is I want to begin to jump into some of these elements. So uh, Tim Keller, again, uh, has this article that he had written. Um, this particular article is called The Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. So again, it's a lengthy title. You can go search it out. Just search Justice, Tim Keller, and you'll kind of find probably this one. He describes the fact that because... Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne, and they make up the very nature and the fabric of who God is, his character. They should be subject matter that we think carefully about and that we want to live out in our day-to-day life. So as we begin to think about this, uh, Keller points out five facets of biblical justice that I want to begin at least are jumping into this to consider it. We're not going to get very far today, so I'm just going to tell you straight up because of time. Uh, so there's going to be a lot that I want to say that I'm not going to say, so I'm going to save the rest for next week. You're welcome. And then we will now, in just a moment, begin to transition into a time of communion. But before we do that, what I want for us to just listen to is the five facets. I'll name them each one, and we'll get through the first one. So the uh, five facets of biblical justice, he identifies as community, 
community, justice plays out in the community. Number two, equity, how we think about others, the quality of being fair, impartial. Number three, corporate responsibility. Number four, individual responsibility. Number five, we'll take a look at advocacy, advocacy. Again, um, I'm just sort of parroting a lot of what Keller has already written, and, um, but I'm, hopefully it'll be helpful. Let's jump in and begin to take a look at one of the facets of biblical justice in the context of community. Uh, the way that he describes this is this way. Others have a claim on my life and wealth, so I must give, though voluntarily. The Bible does not advocate, in a sense, for some form of uh, atheistic socialism or communism where the state steps in and then forces one to give away their assets. It's radically different. It's not that. But it does make the claim that everything that we have is a gift from the one who loves us and gave himself for us. The fact that we have breath, the fact that you have a lung that functions, lungs, I should say, I think you have all too, um, lungs that function and are able to actually access and breathe that breath, the fact that we're able to sit out here and enjoy, the fact that you're able to listen and hear, the fact that we have a, a live feed going on and you're at home watching this, the fact that we have these capabilities, of, all of this is a gift from God. The fact that you live in San Luis Obispo and not some other part of the world, the fact that you went to school, got an education, have a good job. All of these, hopefully you get the idea, all of them are a gift from God. So what does that mean with regard to our community? Now, the American dream basically says, look what I've done for my life. See how I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. What is in it for me at the exclusion of the quote-unquote other? The Bible actually invites us an entirely different way of thinking about each other. And the word for that is community. So the Bible depicts, depicts humanity as a profoundly interrelated community. So those who choose to live in a way that aligns with the heart of God, they live in a way that strengthens that community. Let's, let me read that again. Listen to this. So that those who choose to live in a way that aligns with the heart of God, they live in a way that strengthens that said community. So let me just pause and invite you to think about this. You live in a community. Many of us, again, because I think the Americanism influence that we have, we have this hyper-individualistic perspective. We think that we are self-made human beings. We think that we are alone responsible for what we've accomplished and what we have and what we've done. And therefore, when we think about that it, to its fullest extent, which means I have no responsibility to you whatsoever. That's the way the thinking goes. But the Bible invites us to think differently, to reconsider we belong to one another. If we belong to one another. Uh, so let me give you an example of how this, I think, sometimes even plays out in the church. We treat the church like a hotel room. <laughs> you know exactly what I mean, right? You go to a hotel room. You jump up and down on the bed. You take advantage of the snacks that are in the refrigerator. You drink the like, little, like, 1.5-ounce bottle of tequila. You shouldn't be doing that, but you, get, you do that anyhow. And then you junk the place, and then you leave because you know that someone else is going to take care of it when you leave. And we justify it. We're like, ah, I paid for it, and it's their job to do it. But the church is not a hotel room. It's a family. What if we thought of it differently as a sense of, I have a place of belonging. There's a place of responsibility that I have. And there are things that God's inviting me to consider to think about in terms of loving one another. I think this sometimes even plays out how we think about the subject of giving, of generosity. It's one of the reasons why we even say every single week, there is never, ever, ever any constraint to give 
anything, whether it be coming to help set up and break down or run the sound or do any form of serving others on a Sunday morning or even giving of your time, treasure, and talents, there's never any obligation. But a heart that has been transformed by the generosity of God is asking these bigger questions of where can I give? How can I give? Where are the needs? How can I contribute? See, we oftentimes take this more uh, calculated approach. It's because we think of it as a hotel room. What, what can I take? What can I benefit from? But the aspect of justice is being co-related or interconnected to the concept of justice or community uh, forces us to at least recognize. Now, you may disagree with it, and that's fine. But please understand what you're at least choosing to disagree with is it's the way that God had created things. At least acknowledge that this is how God wired things to be able to flourish. Uh, Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke described it this way. He said, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Let me read that again. Listen. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are only willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. I think spot on. Because justice is deeply interlinked to community. And I'll read this passage, and then we will wrap up with a time of communion. Next week, we will literally just jump right in and begin to get to work looking at a lot of this, because there's a lot to cover. So, listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17 says. God, in speaking, says, do not pervert justice. Which means it's possible for justice to be perverted. Right? Which means that maybe people that have not done anything wrong could be charged with things that they didn't do. It means that there may be sentences that are commuted upon people way beyond than what was rightly to be there is in the first place. So injustice is something that we have to think about. So Deuteronomy says, do not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or to take the widow's garment in a pledge. Um, did you catch that? At least uh, not the quartet of the vulnerable. I think there's only three. So what, what, I'm not sure what the three would be referring to. Trintet. I don't think that's a word, but you get the idea. Three, he points out, he's catch that again. He says, regarding to the fatherless, the widow, and then the sojourner, which means the immigrant. And he says, make sure that you do not take advantage of these people that are already in a vulnerable position. Make sure that you give them their due. Don't distort, don't pervert, don't tip the, t- the scales to take advantage of them at a lowly state in order to advantage yourself. And here's what God goes on to say. He says, but you shall remember that you were once slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in the field and you forget the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, for the Lord your God, that he may bless you. So God actually bakes into the very cultural narrative of the society of God's people. He says, look, it's an agrarian society, which means that they grew their food, right? And God says to those that are farmers, don't harvest your fields to where there's nothing left. Just leave a little bit for those that are in need. 
And then God, God actually uses the phrase in his passage here. He says, that little bit is theirs. How can God lay claim to that? Well, God, the soil belongs to God. The seed belongs to God. The sunlight that allowed the seed to begin to grow. The water that came out of nowhere, you know. Uh, it was all part of God's. The very process that allowed seeds to commingle with soil and water to then begin to germinate and grow into this thing we call a crop. All of that is God, God's thinking, God's idea that God says, look, it's all mine. I'm just asking you to operate, to live your lives, to orchestrate your lives in a way that reflects my generous nature. To not do that is to be a perversion of justice. You belong to a community. Now, there's all sorts of implications of how this plays out, you know, but I don't have time to get into. Like, is, is America a Christian nation, and should we superimpose God's moral law on the nation as a whole? And again, without getting into all this, it's called theodicy, but I'm not going to get into that. But the point of the matter is, as followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, what I want you to at least take a look at, you belong to a community. How are you responding to that community to whom God has invited you into? Is it just disadvantaging others to advantage yourself? Or are you using the gifts, time, treasure, talent that God has given you to be a part of the whole? This is justice. This is part of the playing out of justice in God's heart, God's mind. So with that being said right now, we're going to transition now into a time of confession and to reflect upon God's goodness. We'll partake of communion together. So how about we all stand? If you are in our online audience right now, I'm going to officially say thanks for tuning in. We're going to tune out now. So thanks for joining us today. And as we wrap things up here this morning, in a moment of just quiet heart before God, ask God, God, are there any areas in my life right now that are out of alignment with you?